We are actually starting a new sermon series this week. We just got done with a series called On Earth As It Is In Heaven, and then, of course, the Easter sermon last week. And now we're starting a series going through the parables of Jesus. Uh, and so uh, since we're starting a new series, uh, I thought it might be helpful for us to, before we really jump into the content for today, uh, to look at uh, what parables are for just a quick second. Uh, so that we're, we're setting up ourselves well to really get the most out of this series. Um, so if you look at the original uh, language, when it says a parable, and uh, what we translate as parable in uh, the New Testament, uh, the word, if you translate it literally, it just means to throw alongside. Uh, and, so, and that's what Jesus would do. When Jesus uh, was uh, teaching, or if uh, people came up to him and asked him a question, uh, oftentimes he would throw alongside uh, these stories or sayings uh, to help illustrate uh, the point he was trying to make uh, in his teaching or in his uh, answer to the question. And uh, so that's what parables are. Um, a quick definition is that a parable is a story or saying that is meant to teach a specific point and to provoke a response for the audience. And so those two things are, are what we need to be looking for each week. Uh, what point is Jesus trying to make about himself, uh, about God, about us, or about his kingdom? Uh, Sometimes it's all three, um, as we'll see today. Uh, Jesus is making points about himself, about us, and his kingdom. And so um, what point is Jesus trying to make? And then secondly, what response should this point uh, provoke in us? So those are the two questions we need to be asking ourselves each week as we go through this series. What point is Jesus trying to make uh, through this illustration? And then what response does his point provoke in us? And so um, that's the quick, that's your quick lesson in parables. Um, And so uh, moving forward, um, before we even... I have to do another little introduction before we even jump into the material again, because uh, this particular parable that we're going to be going through this week is um, has a lot of background. And so uh, as I'm going through this, you can go ahead and turn to uh, Luke 20, um, and we're going to be talking about uh, the parable of the wicked tenants. We're going to be starting in Luke 20, verse 9. So while you're flipping there, um, I'm going to set, set us up with some good background, and then we'll read the passage. Um, so first of all, this passage, um, it's helpful to know. Um, it has strong um, allegorical um, implications, and he's, Jesus is referencing um, a, what's often called the Song of the Vineyard from Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. So in this parable, um, he, he talks about a vineyard owner, and we'll read it in a second, and this vineyard and these tenants that are supposed to be looking after the vineyard, and um, there is a strong reference to this passage in Isaiah 5. And so in Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, there's um, Isaiah is um, being a prophet and prophesying, and um, he tells this, uh, it's kind of, he sings this song almost about um, this vineyard owner who found this land uh, and planted a vineyard um, and cultivated it and uh, put this tall tower in the middle to watch over it and created a wine press so that when the harvest came, it would be ready to press. And and, uh, and when the fruit was born, then you could press it into wine and everything was set up and ready. Um, 
But what happened was when the owner came back to the vineyard, uh, the vines were withered. Um, they weren't producing fruit. And what it says at the very end of this song in verses 7 is it says, it basically tells you what it means. It says that the owner is the Lord of armies and the vineyard is the people of God. And God has come back to his people. Um, this is Isaiah uh, basically calling them out saying, God has come back looking for the fruit for the harvest. And instead of finding the fruit of justice, he's found withering away. He's found injustice and unrighteousness. And so that's what Jesus is referencing when he tells this parable. And so it's important to have that as a foundation, but it's also important to have the context in which Jesus tells it, because there's a reason Jesus references that specific uh, prophecy from Isaiah. Before he tells this parable, he has come in. uh, This is actually Holy Week, Um, We just got done with Holy Week and Easter, and so uh, if you were reading the devotionals, you might be familiar um, with uh, the the events that led up to Jesus' death and resurrection, and this is the very first thing that happens. Jesus comes in. um, He has his triumphal entry, uh, but even before he has his entry into Jerusalem where he rides on the back of the donkey, um, it says he looks over Jerusalem. He looks over the city of the people of God, and he weeps. Um, He weeps because what he sees um, and what he knows is going on um, is not the way things are supposed to be. He weeps uh, both um, from being hurt from the the state of things and also in compassion for his people. And so he weeps, he comes in, and he goes straight to the temple as um, you would expect him to do. And what does he find but... um, the religious leaders uh, using the uh, using the temple for what he calls a den of thieves. Um, they've set up shop selling sacrifices um, in what was called the quarter of the Gentiles. And so there's he walks into the temple. Um, it's Passover week. The temple is supposed to be the filled with the presence of God. It's God's dwelling place. It's where you go to worship and adore God. And instead of finding that, he finds people peddling and taking advantage of the people who are there to worship. And not only are they taking advantage of the worshipers financially, they are set up shop in the court of the Gentiles, which is where uh, people from all over who are non-Jewish should have been able to come and freely worship the one true God. And so not only are they taking advantage of the people, but they're filling up the space that was meant to be a blessing to the nations. It was supposed to be representative of a place where non-Jewish people could come and worship their God. Uh, And they couldn't because they were selling sacrifices. And so what does Jesus do? He throws tables. He drives people out. And this is where we find this parable. The next day, Uh, the religious leaders come to Jesus as he's teaching and ask him, by what authority do you do these things? In other words, we saw what you did yesterday. What authority do you have to do this? And Jesus has a quick response about John the Baptist. You can go back and read that in in, um, 1 through 8 of of chapter 20. And then he tells this parable. So I'm sure you're starting to connect the dots. In the parable of the vineyard, God comes back and he finds unrighteousness and injustice. Jesus enters Jerusalem, and he finds unrighteousness and injustice. And this is his response. 
And so let's go ahead and jump in, starting in verse 9 of Luke 20. It says, Now he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers so that they might give him some fruit from the vineyard. But the farmers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent yet another servant, but they beat that one too, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, but they wounded this one too and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What should I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw him, they discussed it among themselves and said, This is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those farmers and give the vineyard to others. But when they heard this, they said, That must never happen. But he looked at them and said, Then what is the meaning of this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. Then the scribes and the chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on him that very hour, because they knew he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they knew what was going on, right? They knew exactly what Jesus was saying, exactly what he was referencing. They knew that this parable had been told against them. And so uh, let's take a moment um, uh, to, to just really dig into the points that Jesus is trying to make. Because Jesus is telling this against these tenant owners, um, these tenant farmers that were the religious leaders, the people that God had entrusted his people to, his vineyard to. Um, but God has put this in Scripture for us, too. And so we need to look at this parable and say, okay, what was Jesus saying to them, and what is he saying to us? So we're going to look at this in three sections. We're going to look at uh, the patience of the owner, the pride of the tenants, and the ultimatum of the stone. Uh, the patience of the owner, the pride of the tenants, and the ultimatum of the stone. So let's look, look first at the owner. Um, it's pretty apparent that the vineyard owner represents God. Um, he builds this vineyard, um, and it says, if you look, look back in Isaiah 5, but also uh, where this parable is told in Matthew and Mark, um, you'll see that the vineyard owner takes great care in planting his vineyard. He takes great pride and great care. He cares deeply for um, his vineyard. Um, so he, he plants it, and then he goes away for a long while, and he entrusts the vineyard uh, to these tenant farmers. And so, um, you know, in this context, that would have been the religious leaders of that day, um, the kings of old. Uh, there were people that God entrusted his people to. Um, and so uh, he, he then he, he begins to send servants, right, to look for the harvest, um, these would have been the prophets, right? Isaiah was one of those prophets. He was one of the prophets that came and said, you know, God is looking for the justice and righteousness that you're supposed to be producing, that fruit, but instead he's finding unrighteousness and injustice. 
And so uh, he sends servant after servant. And what do they do? They, they don't listen to him. They don't give him any of the harvest. And not only that, but they beat them and send them away. And then, and this is where it gets kind of wild. <laughs> then the vineyard owner says, what should I do? I'm sending them. I'm trying to get them on the right page. What should I do? Perhaps I can send my son and they will respect him. Why? Why would he want to send his beloved son after he sent servant after servant, seeing what they did to his servants? Why would he want to send his son? I mean, imagine you in a scenario where um, you have a property um, with some living space and um, you lease it out to uh, some people and, uh, you know, it's in the agreement, hey, I'm going to send, you know, some workers every once in a while to kind of check on the property, make sure, you know, you're taking good care of it. Um, And, uh, you know, just to just to see how things are going, make sure everything's good. Um, but, you know, it, I'm, I'm leasing it out to you. I'll be away. And so you send, you send a worker out, and they get there, and they're like, you know, we're here to check on how things are going. Like, is everything going all right? And they beat the guy up and kick him out. <laughs> and you do that a couple more times. And then you're like, you know what? I think I, think I should send my wife over there. Uh, you know what? I think I should send my son or my daughter. I think I should send my best friend. I think I should send the person that's dearest to me to these people that obviously have no respect and are not treating this property as they should. What? That's wild, right? Why would he do that? Jesus is showing us something here about the owner of the vineyard. He's showing us something here about the character of God. And that's this. That brings us to our first point. That God's mercy goes further than we ever expect. In Romans 5, 8, it says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not once we had gotten our act together. Not once he had come to check on us and we were finally producing fruit. While we were unrighteous, unjust sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is showing the people listening to this that God's mercy goes further than they expect. As people were listening to this, they would have been thinking about tenant farmers uh, in that context and owners of lands that had tenant farmers had a reputation of being somewhat harsh and impatient with those that were um, tending their property and tending their land. Um, And so people that were listening back then would have had a similar reaction that we have when the, the owner sends his son. They would have been listening to this and being overwhelmed and amazed at the patience and mercy that this owner is showing and they would have seen what we seen as we look at this that this owner has incredible mercy and incredible patience and it would have blew them away and it should blow us away this morning and there's an application point i want 
you to take away from, from this point, that God's mercy goes beyond what we expect, goes further than we could ever expect. And that's this. When you doubt God's mercy, and we all do, we mess up, uh, we ignore God for a while, whatever it may be, we all have times where we doubt that God will actually meet us where we are. We doubt that God could still be pursuing us after all we've done, after how long we've ignored him, after how long far we've run. We all doubt God's mercy. When you doubt God's mercy, look at the cross. His mercy goes further than you can imagine. And the cross is the proof of that. When you doubt God's mercy, when you doubt his grace, look to the cross and let his mercy and grace wash over you and you. Be blown away by the great mercy of God. That's what Jesus wanted them to do as they were listening. And that's what he wants us to do today. God's mercy goes farther than you could ever imagine. Then you have the capacity to comprehend. That's beautiful. And that brings us to um, the second section we're going to look at, which is the pride of the tenants. Why did these tenants not see the mercy they were being shown? Well, they had come, for one, they had come to think of the vineyard as their own. They had come to see themselves as the owner of the vineyard. Um, and, and we do this in our own lives. We, uh, we come to think of what we own as our own. We come to think of um, our family as our own. We come to think of our own lives as our own to do with what we please. It wasn't meant to be that way. We like to set ourselves up as gods of our own lives, just as these tenants set themselves up as the owners of this property that was truly God's. God in, and God entrusts you with your life. He entrusts you with your family. He entrusts you with the things you have. Um, and, you know, he, he does expect fruit, but we set ourselves up. We, our pride begins to build up, and we see ourselves as the gods of our own lives, just as these tenant farmers began to see themselves as the owners of this property. And their, pl- their pride blinded them to the mercy of the owner, just as our own pride can blind us to the mercy of God. So even though God's mercy goes beyond what we can imagine, our pride can build up so much that we fail to ever see it. And so as these tenants uh, were sent servant after servant to warn them and warn them and come for the harvest and come for the harvest, they kept, they persisted in their rebellion and it led to their pride building and building and building. And not only did they, not only did they do this great injustice to the owner of the vineyard who was showing great mercy, they killed his son. Just as these religious leaders, staring at God in the flesh to his face, 
hears a parable like this, telling them exactly what they were doing, telling them exactly what they would do, because they too would throw the, vin- the son out of the vineyard, out of Jerusalem, and kill him. Telling them exactly what they had done, what they would do, and they seethe with anger, waiting to get their hands on him. And that brings us to our, the second point that I think Jesus is showing, is that pride destroys relationships. These tenant farmers had traded a relationship with an obviously loving and merciful owner for his things. They had a life of security and abundance. Remember, the, the owner didn't send and say, give me everything. He just sent the servant to get some of the harvest. He wasn't taking everything. They still had an abundance of harvest for themselves. They had a life of security and in abundance, and they sacrificed that for judgment and bankruptcy. And instead of fighting for justice for this loving, merciful owner, they only cared about themselves. Pride destroys relationships, and it does so on three levels. It destroys your relationship with yourself as you continue to reject the mercy and love of, the, of God, of the vineyard owner. It, it, that pride compounds, and you begin to puff yourself up. And in doing that, you destroy your relationship with yourself because God created us and entrusted us with our lives for purpose. And that purpose is not to build ourselves up. And so that means that when you are building yourself up and caring only about yourself, you're destroying your relationship with yourself. You're destroying the relationship of, with yourself that should be a life of meaning and purpose spent loving God and loving others. Instead, you're spending it all only caring about yourself. Pride destroys your relationship with yourself. And as you begin to more and more only care about yourself, it destroys your relationship with others, and ultimately it destroys your relationship with God. You see, it doesn't... There's not a stagnation. I want us to see that. When... When you rebel against God and reject the mercy and grace and love he offers you, you don't just stay stagnant. The more and more you do that, the further and further you get. It's not like you can accept some of his grace and mercy and then be stagnant for a while. There's there's no stagnation. You're either moving towards him or moving away from him. And that's what our pride does. It pushes us away from God. It pushes us away from our others. And it even pushes us away from ourselves, meaning away from the life we were meant to live. And so the application of, of this point is that rejecting God's mercy and grace increases our pride and re- impairs our relationships with ourselves, with others, and with God. This application is related to the last one, right? 
Stop rejecting God's mercy. Start letting it amaze you and wash over you. And that brings us to the last section, the ultimatum of the stone. Jesus ends the parable, and then he begins to directly address these people. The religious leaders, after he finished the parable, they said, that must never happen. Well, it's because they knew he was telling it about them. And in the parable, they get destroyed, right? That must never happen. It's, their, it's still their pride speaking. And so Jesus, Jesus knowing that, is left no choice but to give them an ultimatum. And what does he say? He says, he looks at them and he says, then what is the meaning of this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What does that mean, right? Well, it's a reference to Psalm 118. Psalm 118 um, is a psalm that has very strong uh, messianic and um, uh, themes, very strong themes of salvation. And um, basically what Jesus is saying here is he's telling them by alluding to this psalm, he's saying, I am the stone that the builders rejected. I am becoming the cornerstone. Will you accept me or will you reject me? That's the ultimatum. And he tells them what will happen right after that. He says, he goes on to say, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. And that's kind of confusing. Um, but he, what he's ultimately saying is, uh, think about you, you trip, a, like, he's kind of saying like you're stumbling, you're tripping on the stone in the first thing, and you're broken. But what do we know about brokenness? When we see Jesus for who he is, he's basically telling them, I am the Messiah. I am your salvation. And when we see him who, for who he is, and we see the great mercy and grace on display, and then we, too, look at our own pride, our own sinfulness, our own brokenness, brokenness leads to repentance. Brokenness leads to the accepting of God's mercy and grace and leads to repentance. So when he says, those who fall on the stone, those who stumble over it, those who encounter me for who I am and see who they really are, are broken. And that brokenness leads to the acceptance of my grace and mercy and repentance. A life that will ultimately be transformed into a life of purpose. Sorry. But for those who persist in rebellion, for those who are unable anymore because of consistent and constant rebellion, consistent and constant rejection of God's mercy, for those people, I will fall on them and they will be shattered. That's a sign of judgment. Um, those people will be destroyed. There'll be, there's a sense in the language in the original text of being ground up and blown away in the wind. It's a life with no purpose. And here's a, the point I want us to see in this section. 
uh, our third point, and that's that there is no middle ground with Jesus. We either accept him or we deny him. There's no middle ground. Uh, C.S. Lewis is popular for something that people have called the trilemma. Um, I'm sure you've heard Aaron reference it before in a sermon, uh, but it's basically this. He says that Jesus is either a liar, lunatic, or Lord. He's either a liar, he knows that he's not the Messiah, that he's not God, but he says he is anyway, or he's a lunatic, he thinks he's the Messiah, he thinks he's God, but he's really not, or he's Lord. He's actually who he says he is. He is God become flesh. He is the Messiah. He is our our salvation. There's no middle ground. You can't just say, oh, Jesus was a great teacher, because then you're just taking some of what he said and not listening to all, not listening to him when he says, then what does this scripture mean? And points it at himself and says, this is about me. There's no middle ground with Jesus. You accept him or you deny him. You see the depth of your own pride and the great mercy and grace of the Lord of armies, as it says in Psalm, as it says in Psalm 118. And you let that grace and mercy touch your heart and transform you, giving you a life of purpose, restoring relationship with yourself, with others, with God or you're ground up into dust. And I wanted to make, a, make sure we see this, because oftentimes we hear, you're ground up in the dust and you have no life or meaning or purpose, right? And we think, wow, that's awful. Why would anyone do that? But I want us to see this ultimatum isn't one of isolated wrath and judgment. This ultimatum is love. Remember the scenario that Jesus was asked this question in. He goes into Jerusalem and he weeps over what he sees. He doesn't go in saying, I'm going to get them. He weeps. He sees the state of things and it breaks his heart. The same way it breaks your heart when you see your loved one going down the wrong path, a path of addiction or a path of, um, of hurt or a path of, that leads to depression and angst or a, whatever path it may be. It breaks your heart when you see someone you deeply care for going down the wrong path. That's the mindset of Jesus as he's answering this question, as he's addressing these religious leaders, his heart is breaking for them. Remember what he said as he was dying on the cross. Forgive them, they know not what they do. That's not the, that's not the address of someone who's just out to get you. That's the address of someone who, whose heart is broken for his people. He weeps over the city, and then he goes and he sees the injustice in the temple. He sees a court that's meant to be a place where people of all nations can come and worship no matter who they are, the one true God. And it angers him. 
It's a righteous anger. He drives them out. He says, you're not, this is the dwelling place of God, and you're using it to peddle animal sacrifices. Remember in Isaiah 5, when God comes back, what is the fruit he's looking for? It's not a fruit of attending the temple. It's not a fruit of sacrificing enough animals. It's not the fruit of reciting enough scripture in in your homes as a good Jewish family. And it's, it's not those things. The fruit he was looking for was justice, was righteousness, was the people of God acting like the people of God. It's the same with us. When he comes to us, that's what he expects. His heart is broken, and he has no choice but to give this ultimatum. But we have hope this morning because we're not left with just this. You see, the cornerstone is mentioned in uh, two other places in the New Testament, once by Paul in Ephesians 2 and once by Peter in 1 Peter 2. Paul and Peter recognize the importance of this concept of Jesus as the cornerstone. And in both places, they talk about Jesus being the cornerstone on which his new church is built, the foundation on which the kingdom of God is brought from heaven to earth, the foundation upon which his church is built up. You see, in Isaiah 5, when God comes and finds the vineyard fruitless and withering, it says that this vineyard will wither away and become a wasteland and be trampled upon. But Jesus turned things around here, and instead of ending his parable by saying, now my people will waste away and become nothing, he says, no, I'm taking it away from these tenants, and I'm going to give it to new tenants. The vineyard is not destroyed. It's under a new leadership, and that is the leadership of the church. You see, we are all called to be priests royal priests in his new kingdom. We are all called to be ambassadors for him in his new kingdom. We have the opportunity this morning to let the grace and mercy of God move us to repentance and to accept our jobs as the new tenants of the vineyard of God, of the people of God, of his kingdom. And this is a great responsibility. God still expects fruit but he doesn't intend for us to produce it on our own, and he never did. You see, in Ephesians 2, it says that Jesus is the cornerstone on whom we are built, and it says that we trust in him, for in him we also are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. On the foundation of the work of Jesus Christ, his church is built to be a dwelling place for God, each and every one of us. He doesn't intend for us to produce this fruit on our own, this fruit of justice and righteousness. He comes to dwell in us, to produce it within us. And in 1 Peter 2, it says that we are his chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That we are to proclaim the praises of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once we were not a people, 
but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. We are called to be the people of God, a people for his own possession, a people who once had not received mercy, but now have. And in receiving that mercy, become God's dwelling place to bring heaven to earth. What a beautiful life God intends for us. So how do we respond? Remember, we looked at some of the points Jesus was trying to make about himself and about us and about his kingdom. But he also wants to provoke a response in you this morning. I think there's, there's three responses that we, we should have. The first one is pretty obvious. We've already kind of said it. You have to decide, will you accept Jesus and submit to him as Lord, or will you reject him? And you can do that today. You can do that today. If you've never truly experienced the mercy and grace of God that blows you away, seeing Jesus for who he is, taking our sin on the cross so that we could be the people of God, a people for his own possession. If you've never experienced that, you can today. Um, after we end, as, as we're ending in worship and singing, uh, I'll be in the back um, I'll, I'll have Trey uh, be in the back too. If you want to respond to this, if you want to or just find out more, ask some questions, come speak to one of us and, and we'll be happy to talk to you about this. But there's two other responses. If we do accept Jesus, the next response is that we must make our business about tending his vineyard with the same care in which he created it. Remember, when God came back to the vineyard in Isaiah 5, he was not looking for church attendance. He was not looking for, you know, how many Christian playlists that you have saved on Spotify. Uh, He was not looking for um, how many daily devotions you do um, or how consistent you've been. He was looking for justice. He was looking for visible fruit that his people were working on his behalf in the world. That's what Jesus is calling us as the new tenants to do. That's the response he wants us to have. He wants us to spread the good news of who he is and what he's done in the world, in word and deed. He wants us to fight for justice, to leave our pride behind and spend our lives serving others. And we get to leave the harvest to God. And that brings us to the last response I think Jesus wants us to have. You see, he referenced Psalm 118 in verse 22. But in verses 23 and 24, after Uh, He says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It says this, this came from the Lord. It is wondrous in our sight. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. The third response Jesus wants us to have is rejoicing. 
So as we continue in worship this morning, the band's going to come back up and play. Rejoice that our God is a God of great mercy and grace. A great mercy and grace that goes beyond anything you could ever ask for or imagine. That finds you in the deepest depths or in the highest heights and asks you to leave your pride and your own ambitions behind for a life filled with love and grace and mercy and purpose to be a people of his own possession. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of great mercy. And God, we pray that that mercy this morning would wash over us anew, that we would look to the cross that cross that should have been ours and see you there dying on our behalf and just be filled with awe that we will be broken over our sin. And in that brokenness, God, that we would look to you, put our trust in you, submit to you and live a life caring for your people, bringing heaven to earth. And I pray that, God, we would just rejoice in that this morning. God, we praise you in the wonderful name of Jesus.